I think I've ever been of my dad was also the moment where I saw him most angry and most afraid. It was uh, probably 10 years ago or so. My niece, Ellie, was real small, only four or five. We were at uh, an anniversary for an aunt and uncle of mine at a venue that none of us had ever been to before. And so when we went in from the kind of the main parking lot, um, we went into the party, but when we went to leave, we went out the wrong door or not the door that we come in on. And the door that we went out opened straight into a street. So my niece, who, like I said, was four or five, went bounding out ahead of everybody, and she popped the door and stepped off the curb straight into traffic. My dad was the one who was closest to her, and so he sort of leapt out the door, and it was cinematic, right? It was like he hung in midair. He grabbed her as he was moving and then kind of tossed her backwards to us, and he came so close to the car that his back actually hit the car as he turned around. When he yanked her, he yanked her hard. It looked like she dislocated her shoulder. She didn't, but he pulled her hard the way you have to when a kid's in a bind like that. And so when he turned around, of course, everybody, our hearts stopped for a moment, right? 
But he saw, we all saw the look in her face, and she was scared. Not of the car. She missed the car. Otherwise, he wouldn't have had the problem. She was scared of Dad because he yanked her arm hard. So Dad got down on one knee in front of her, and she's kind of hiding behind her mom's skirts. And he says, sweetheart, come out. Grandpa needs to talk to you. Grandpa needs to talk to you. And eventually, she kind of peeks her head out, and he says, does your arm hurt? And she nods her head, and she's crying. I'm very sorry that I hurt your arm. If I could have done that without hurting your arm, I would have done it. But I'd rather have you have a hurt arm and not get hit by a car than an okay arm and get hit by a car. She looked at him, and she didn't say anything. But about three or four days later, she came back on her own and said, thank you for hurting my arm. The... Gospels today, the the readings today, the gospel in particular, is concerned with authority and obedience. And the responsibility of care that those of us in authority have, and the responsibility of obedience that all of us under authority owe. It's our parents, for most of us at least, the person who raises us, who are our first experience of authority. The authority given to the parent and the obedience demanded of the child come from nature. They're built into nature. The parent is responsible for the care and the upbringing of the child. And because the parent has the primary responsibility for the care and the upbringing of the child, the parents are afforded the rights necessary to fulfill those responsibilities. When a parent fails in a serious way in doing that, then we judge them a bad parent. And if a person's a bad enough parent, that is, if they fail in their responsibilities bigly enough, like in a, in a big enough way, then the state will actually intervene and modify or even take away those parental rights because the rights depended on the responsibilities for which they'd been given to begin with. Likewise, a child who fails in a serious way in obedience to the parent is judged to be a bad child. Father Flanagan, there's no such thing as a bad boy. Come to a classroom for 20 minutes. I'll show you the opposite. <laughs> He's on to something, right? But but this is significant. The language that we use is meaningful here. So when we say a a parent's bad at fulfilling their their job as parent or a child's bad at fulfilling their job as child, it's because there's real duties that are being failed in. Those under authority have a duty of obedience. Those in authority have a duty of care and responsibility. In large part, that duty of obedience exists primarily or specifically to hold the people in authority accountable to ensure that they're the ones actually fulfilling their responsibilities. All right, so last week we talked about solidarity, this firm and persevering determination to commit oneself to the common good and to be in an intentional relationship with all of those individuals or groups of people that we might interact with but not have a natural relationship with. Solidarity is what's at the heart of most of the church's social teaching. Certainly, everything we say about poverty and about immigration and about relationship between nations and and how we justify or don't war. It's what informs, in a big way, our teaching concerning elections, which should concern us around here, given Tuesday. And the selection, the ethical selection, that is, of particular candidates. It's also what needs to inform Catholic politicians or those in positions of authority in the civil sphere, right? 
The notion of solidarity needs to inform all of their decision-making, which is why it's important that we have good Catholics that get elected to office. And it's precisely this disposition of solidarity that's lacking in most of our most difficult relationships. The person you don't get along with at work is not a person you're deeply identifying with. The, the relative that you struggle to get along with, whether it's in your home or at family gatherings, is the person you want to keep at most distance, not the person you've intentionally drawn close to in head, heart, and mind. Solidarity has a kind of a sister principle. So there, there, there are two big ideas here that come together. Just as important, but more often misunderstood. And it's that principle that's at the heart, both of what's going on in the gospel and in that first reading. Subsidiarity is the idea that authority is based on relationships. And so the competent authority is that closest to a particular situation. The, comp the competent authority that is closest to the situation is the one best suited to deal with it. That's why nine times out of 10, something goes wrong in the home. Who's the competent authority? Mom and dad, right? Something goes wrong at work. Who's the competent authority? The boss. Something goes wrong at school. Who's the authority? The teacher, the principal. Here, ultimately, the priest. Local civil authorities are those best equipped to deal with, say, matters pertaining to the sidewalk or grass length. But the National Congress should not be making laws about national grass length. Likewise, the Des Moines City Council has no proper competence for national defense. It'd be a disaster for them to try and enter into it. It's not their job. You see how this is working? This is important because when God names himself king of Israel, he's showing us where all true authority comes from. All legitimate authority at home, at work, in the civil sphere, and of course in the church, ultimately comes from God. And that raises the stakes for those of us in authority and under authority. For those of us in authority, it means we have to do much more than simply prove ourselves competent leaders. We have to do much more than simply make sure we can placate the people under our charge or keep the trains running on time. It means that we are accountable, ultimately, not to the people whom we serve, but to God himself. The worst you can do is write a bunch of letters and have the bishop replace me. The worst God can do to me? Yeah, you get the idea. And the same thing is true for those of us under authority. Those of us under authority have a responsibility of obedience, and we need to fulfill that unless whatever's going on is so serious that my conscience will actually be compromised if I participate in it. Not that I think it's a mistake. Leaders make mistakes all the time. Parents make mistakes all the time. You want proof? Look at your kids. <laughs> Come on, that was funny. Parents make mistakes all the time. Parish priests make mistakes all the time. Teachers in schools, admins and principals, bosses at work. But most of the time, the mistakes that they make are material mistakes, misunderstandings, or, or, or failing to grasp a particular situation. Making a mistake doesn't by itself constitute someone a bad leader. Failing in the duty of care for other people is what constitutes someone a bad leader. Jesus isn't hung up on the scribes and the Pharisees because they don't have real authority. He presumes the legitimacy of their authority. That's the whole point of this saying. They sit on the seat of Moses. 
Therefore, do whatsoever they tell you, but do not follow their example. Why? What's wrong with their example? Well, they tie up heavy burdens to lay on people's backs, and they do not lift a finger to help them. They widen their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels. Jesus is not upset about phylacteries and tassels. Jesus wore phylacteries and tassels. We know that because later on, the lady reaches out and grabs his tassel. (laughs) Okay? So he's not upset that these things exist, but he doesn't want people drawing unnecessary attention to themselves with it. You know, it'd be like a layman walking around with a pectoral cross big enough for a bishop. It sends the wrong message, and the person's attention is on the wrong object. He's not concerned with the people under his charge, and he doesn't really fear the judgment that he's ultimately going to face from Almighty God. Which means that we who are in authority and we who are subject to authority need to be disposing ourselves constantly to God's power in our life, to God's rule and God's reign, the very reason we name Jesus as our king. The root of the word obedience is a Latin word for listen. Ob means hard or very, and audir, like audio, means to listen. So, so what obedience means, ultimately, is to listen hard. Now, sometimes this gets used as an excuse to disobey. Well, I listened to what Father said, and then I just ignored him. Nope, it don't work like that. Believe me, I've tried. It is, rather, the kind of deep listening that occurs in relationships of care. So, I'm a celibate priest, and I know that the answer to the question honey, does this make me look fat, is never yes. Because when she says, honey, does this make me look fat, she's not actually asking about the dress, right? She's asking for affirmation. Honey, you're gorgeous. You're beautiful. It's my favorite, right? And that's okay. That's a feature of human language. Well, the same thing's going on whenever we give or receive an order. So I tell the kids this all the time. You ask your folks if you can stay out past curfew, and they say no. And what the kid hears is, I don't trust you, I don't trust your friends, you're going to be home by 10. Whereas, unless the kid's totally rotten all the time, that's not what the parent's saying. What the parent's saying is, I love you and I care about you and I want you to be safe. And the only way I know to have you home to get you safe is to have you home by 10. Well, it is a lot easier to fulfill a command from someone whom I hear in my head saying, I love you and I care about you and I want you to be safe than somebody who I hear in my head saying, I don't trust you, I don't trust your friends. But the person responsible for that is not the one giving the order. It's the one receiving it. Most of us are not well disposed to be obedient because we're pretty convinced our opinions are right and we think we know better than the person in charge. And the problem is you can't run any institution that way, let alone a church, especially a church, that really believes that God works through its leaders and its people. It's hard pastoring a large parish. I try not to complain about it very much because it sounds whiny, but I, but I want to say this because I think the example's helpful, especially at this Mass. It's hard running a large parish, and here's one of the reasons why. So every weekend, I have five fairly disparate communities that come together to pray in at least two, sometimes more, languages. And for the most part, we stay in our 
individualized community here. Most of us go to the same mass each weekend. So if we have relationships with other people at church, it's usually the people at the mass that we usually go to. I'll be real honest. If we did this by the numbers, we should only have three masses this weekend, any weekend. We should only have three masses on the weekend. But I don't feel like I can reduce us down to three masses. Why, Father? Well, because... 60-some percent of the money that comes in every weekend comes from this Mass and Saturday night, even though you're the smallest Masses. So what I as pastor have to do is look at that situation and make a, a prudential judgment. If I risk shifting or canceling a Mass, I risk my bottom line. And I can't afford to do that because I've got too much else that we're responsible for. But if I keep up with an un, uh, untenable number of Masses, I risk running my priests into the ground. So how do I manage? How do I work for the common good of the parish? And I'm using that as an example because it's pretty low stakes. But I put solid money, every one of us in charge of something, whether it's just our own household budget or the relationships in our wider extended family, the people that we're in charge of at work or the, the, the bridge club that we help coordinate. Every one of us is an authority over something. And every one of us has to make those kinds of decisions. Am I as deferential? Do I presume the good? Am I as solicitous about the care of the people in charge of me as I wish the people that I'm in charge of were of me? Am I as docile in those situations where I'm subject to somebody else's authority as I want people to be to me when I'm in charge? And do I pray, really and genuinely pray for my leaders in the church and in every other sphere of my life to be holy so that they can make good decisions, so that they can be leaders not after the heart of the scribes and the Pharisees, but after the heart of Jesus himself. Leaders who serve and who help lift whatever burdens they find on the backs of the people, whether they've laid them there or not.